Hey everyone, today's guest, Simu Liu, is about to become the world's next superstar as the lead in Marvel's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. We talk about his incredible journey beginning with emigrating from China at the age of five to first loves, getting fired from his accounting job, and the tweet that led to the role of a lifetime. Later in the episode, April and I talk with a listener who wants a mature, loving relationship but seems to attract partners only interested in sex. I really want to thank everyone for their openness and sharing their stories. If you have a question and would like some unqualified and qualified advice, please look for the link at unqualified.com. Now here's Marvel's newest superstar, Simu Liu. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Where should I start from? I want to go back to the beginning, essentially. Mm -hmm. You emigrated when you were five to Canada. Yeah. Correct? Oh, yeah. All the way back. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. And you're an only child, correct? Yeah. So your parents moved to outside of Toronto or Ontario? Yeah. So initially, my parents both went to Queen's University, which is in a town called Kingston. If you put a pin right in the middle of Toronto and Ottawa, Kingston would be right in the middle. It's about two and a half hours to the east of Toronto. Tiny little uh, university town. With a regal name, With though. a very, very regal name and uh, beautiful, uh, beautiful lakes. How many languages do you speak? <laughs> it really depends. You know, on a good day, I feel like I can speak Mandarin. And then I, I shot a movie in the Dominican Republic for two and a half months, after which I totally expected to be fluent in Spanish. But uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure outside of saying I'm tired and uh, ordering like some specific foods, it hasn't really stuck with me. So let's go with like one and a half. I'm really interested in languages. Is there a phrase that is useful in Mandarin that is kind of impossible to translate into English? That is such a great question that I feel like I wish I had a better grasp of the language so I could give you a better answer. The only thing that I can think of right now is like the way that we describe flavor. There's a word that we use to describe this. Like, I guess it vaguely means like umami, but it's like xian and xian. It's like a word that we use to describe like home cooking. This just like really flavorful soups that our, you know, our parents or our family members make. And if it's really xian, then it's it's just like it's hearty. It's good. Xian. Yeah, you said it perfectly. It's just like heartiness and wholesome family vibes, but like in flavor. I that's all really I got for like you right that. now. It's not. I, that's good, though. I love it. I love it. All right, so let's jump ahead for just a minute to the tweet. Yes. Tell our listeners if you don't mind. Sure. So, uh, you know, the Shang-Chi movie was initially announced December 2018. The studio was coming off the success of Black Panther. You know, it was like a big watershed moment because it kind of finally proved to, you know, studios in the industry and the world that, you know, people of color could lead uh, you know, blockbuster tentpole movies, and those movies could go on to generate billions of dollars at the box office. And so it was a big moment. You know, they, they decided to fast track the development of this Shang-Chi movie. And I was at the time 
on a Netflix sitcom called Kim's Convenience. And um, it was really the only meaningful credit that I had to my name. Kim's Convenience was beloved. It was a really charming show. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for watching it. But yeah, so I, I, I literally, you know, I, I kind of fancied myself like a, a tweeter. I like to do, you know, hot takes or whatever it is that people think that they do on Twitter. And so when I got the news that they were developing the movie, I kind of was just like very facetiously tweeting like, hey, are we going to are we going to talk or what? There wasn't a single part of me that thought that somebody at Marvel would see it. Like, you know, we both know how these things work at this point. Like those accounts are run by like social media interns right. for like an advertising agency, you know, but still I was, you know. Well, maybe, you know, if if I have any fans and if they support the decision, they'll talk about it and they'll generate some buzz or whatever. But I really I didn't have high hopes at all. And um, it really wasn't until May of the following year. So May 2019, that my team got the initial kind of uh, request to read for the role. And I remember it very clearly It was two scenes from Goodwill Hunting. Because, you know, with that machine, they never kind of show you what the actual scenes are, what the movie is. They probably actually don't even have the movie written at that point. And for our listeners, putting yourself on tape is incredibly unnatural looking performance. Yes. It's a hard process because you're performing an emotional scene or, or an important scene. But inevitably, if you like watch them back before you send it in, it's just painful. Because everything is forced and awkward. You're in like a muffled room. Totally. And it's just an all around like, is this a good idea? <laughs> I think you described it perfectly. <gasps> just the anxiety that goes behind these these self-tapes and like the the kind of volume at which you crank them out and then they just disappear into the ether. And it's like sometimes you really do either you put hours of your time into it, you call your friends, you have them take hours out of their day to like come over and read with you or God forbid you can't find anyone and you're reading to like literally like an iPhone recording of you saying the other person's lines and you're acting to like a dot on a wall. But um, it's such a horrifying experience. I'm, I'm so happy to say that I, I haven't done one in quite some time. Good. I wouldn't wish it on, on anybody. I know it's such a it's like such an important part of being an actor. And I feel like the art of learning self-tapes, it's like a whole different craft unto itself that is totally separate from what you actually do. There's very much a distinction between being a good auditioner and then performing on set. It does feel like they're almost two different abilities. Totally. Totally. So you sent in your Goodwill hunting scenes. So I sent in the self-tape, and again, it's like, as an actor, I feel like you have to condition yourself to like the moment that self-tape kind of disappears or you feel it sent off, like you have to kind of forget about it because the moment, like the moment that you get attached to it is the moment that they just never call you back and you never hear from it again and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. It's the only way to kind of protect yourself. Absolutely. Like if you like throw away the sides, otherwise it is so self-torturous. You can just get on that hamster wheel wondering, calling your agent. Absolutely. And like, uh, Absolutely. what do you think? So they liked the tapes. Did they then fly you to Los Angeles? I flew myself. Um, it was one of nice. those situations where they were like, oh, yeah, we kind of we kind of like him. You know, it's like you, you don't want to leave it up to chance at that point, because who knows, like 
you know, it's one producer's having a bad day and all of a sudden, you know, they don't like you or the director has gotten in an argument and then all of a sudden, you know, you go from a yes to a no. Like, I just wanted to, I wanted to just show up. And so it was right around uh, the July 4th holiday. And in Canada, we celebrate July 1st as Canada Day as well. So, you know, I had a few days off. I was shooting Kim's at the time. And my manager was like, you think you should come down? And I was like, yeah, I think, I think it's a good idea. Came down, met with Destin at Seraphin's casting office and, uh, you know, went through a couple of scenes with him. I remember it was my first time meeting him and working with him. I don't know if you've met him. He's, he's such a sweet, gentle being. He's able to kind of put you at ease right away. And, you know, as much as I love in-person auditions, they make me so nervous. And especially two years ago when I had really not a whole lot to my name and not a whole lot of experience, that was like, it was a really nerve wracking moment. But he put me at ease right away. We went through the scenes. I had this like out of body moment where, you know, I had done a scene. I was on book because it just happened so fast. And I got the lines the day before, didn't have a chance to, to memorize them. And then he was like, you know what, just just throw away the paper. Let's just do the scene. And it doesn't matter if you don't know the words, make up some words and we'll just like stumble our way through it. And I had this like, I was like, okay, he's testing me right now. And, and I started to like, I got to jump in. And um, just kind of like played out this completely improv scene that was in the spirit of what was written, but was just totally spontaneous and new. And I could tell by the look that he gave me at the end of it that I probably, probably had a shot to book this role. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it's, that, it's that moment, that look of like, oh, yeah, he's picturing you in the role, Simo. Okay. And I remember leaving feeling like I was going to throw up because it was the first time that I'd allowed myself the permission to believe that I had a shot. And I remember, it's just like my head was spinning. I had to call my friend right away and be like, holy shit, I don't know what's happening right now, but I think I might get this Marvel role. And um, yeah, I think it was about a, a week later that I got called in for, uh, for the screen test. Oh, okay. So did you know during that week that it had gone well? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, good. yeah. I had this like, it went so well that it made me sick. My experience like booking Scary Movie, I put myself on tape with like my mom, but it was like one of those big like VHS, <laughs> you maybe. No, 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 no. I grew up in the, in the time of VHS. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. You had like a camcorder. Yeah. Amazing. And then they asked if I would be willing to fly myself down. So I did. Uh -huh. My mom gave me some miles. I auditioned for a week straight and I hadn't been living in Los Angeles. I had only been there one other time. I got the role at the end of the week, and then we were supposed to be in Vancouver on Monday. So I had oh two days to kind of digest what exactly had happened to me. And it was, I want to know how you describe it, because it felt like, like an earthquake in my life that I couldn't really describe to anyone. It felt intensely euphoric and intensely alone. Mm -hmm. But I remember not being able to exactly articulate mm -hmm. the overwhelming idea of my life shifting. I Yes. It felt fast and it felt large. I'd never done comedy before. I thought for sure I was going to get fired. Oh my god. But did you feel kind of that overwhelming like, "Oh, I'm the lead in a fucking Marvel movie?" Yes. Tell me about the call and then like the days after. Of course. I remember it like so vividly. It was on a Tuesday. I had flown to Brooklyn to do the screen test on the Sunday. 
was driven to, you know, the studio where they were doing the screen test. And it was like, it was really legit. Like they had rented a studio space and there was like someone doing makeup and someone doing wardrobe. I was mic'd. There was a whole camera team. And um, Nora Aquafina was, was actually there because she had already kind of come aboard the project. So it was really, it was like a chemistry read. Even though I was the lead in the movie, I had to do a chemistry read with Nora, who was amazing and, and so, so incredible. But yeah, I remember, first of all, like leading up to that moment, I was like such a dork on I was like in the plane and I was like playing the Avengers Endgame soundtrack on repeat because I was, you know, it was just like trying to hype myself up. But you're so right in saying that it's such a big deal to you that probably the biggest deal in the history of big deals. It is like the moment your life can either continue as it was before or seismic shift in a completely different way. And it just becomes something that you've never even allowed yourself to fathom. But then you're sitting in the plane and everyone, like nobody else knows what you're going through. Right, right, right. You know, even walking out of, you know, Sarah Finn's casting office and being like, oh my God, I think I have a chance to book this movie. All of a sudden you walk down the street and like, you know, you walk into the coffee shop and the guy's like, are you going to order something or are you just going to sit there? You know, and, (laughs) and you're just like struggling to process all of this. So yeah, Tuesday, it was about six in the afternoon. I actually had worked on set earlier in the day and gotten in a fight with my producer over some line that, you know, I was like, we have to take this line out. It was, it turned out to be this big thing. We stopped shooting for a while. Can I ask what the line was? Yes. It was something about my character's name. So my character's name on the show is Jung. And um, I think the context was like, my character works at a um, car rental agency and they have these like monthly meetings. And one of these guys is like really belligerent, really racist. But for some reason, everyone is okay with him because, you know, for whatever reason. He's charming. Yeah, he's, he's charming. You know, he's a man. Um, so I, I had to walk into the room and be like, yeah, this guy called me Egg Foo Jung. And it's, it's hilarious, right? Which I thought was just not great for so many reasons. You know, uh, my character on the show is Korean. Egg Foo Young is a dish that, you know, is served at American Chinese restaurants. It just felt icky to me and I didn't, I didn't want to say it. So I, I asked if we could have a different joke written and um, there was some resistance. Yeah, we just kind of kept going at it until finally they relented and they, and they came up with another joke. I had a similar experience on Mom. My character, Christy, my line was something about getting gypped. Mm. which is a term that... It's derogatory. Yeah, that's hurtful. And it was a big deal in my university, actually. But I was met with a ton of resistance. Mm-hmm. Like, kind of the only time that I was courageous enough, mm-hmm. I think, to be like, let's really check culturally if we can... Yeah, it's so incredibly hard to be that person. And I'm not trying to throw anybody else under the bus, but I was in a situation where nobody stepped up for me, right? And so it was just, and I don't know what happened in your case, but... uh, No, yeah, I was met with total confusion. And then people were, I think, a little offended that I was suggesting something that hadn't occurred to mm -hmm. them. Then there was sort of this stubborn obstinance, like, no, you're not right. Mm -hmm. That is so fascinating. Because, I mean, I was casting Kim's in 2016, which is five years ago. I think this has all happened very, very quickly for me. So I've had to kind of learn so quickly how to transition from being the grateful actor who shows up and does what he is told and says the lines and doesn't make a fuss 
and isn't difficult to like a fully empowered artist who can put their hand up when something isn't right, who has the creative agency. And it is so, so hard, you know, for, I mean, I'm an immigrant, obviously. I'm an actor of color and working on Kim's Convenience, we all just knew how precious those opportunities were. And nobody, nobody wanted to be the person who spoke out. And, and if there was something that happened that we didn't want to do, more often than not, we acquiesced because what were we going to do? Bite the hand that fed us? You know, bite the hand that gave us yes. our only opportunity? So it is so incredibly difficult. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I think that's really interesting to hear come from a man, though, because for a long time, I thought if I was incredibly agreeable mm -hmm. and a joy to work with and, you know, hopefully giving good performances, because mm -hmm. I thought that there was value mm -hmm. to being maybe described as low maintenance. Yes, yes, that you thought that the goodwill that you put forth would be repaid somehow out of the kindness yes. of their heart or out of like the karma of the universe that if you were agreeable and you said yes and you're easy to work with that totally. that would work out for you somehow and i'm sure that you're not like by any means difficult to work with but it's it's you learn quickly that when you don't have that backbone or you don't stand up for yourself at least some of the time you're bound to everybody else's agenda and and more often than not i think if you're producing a show or you're the head writer of a show i think there is always going to be an agenda of maintaining your power, maintaining your creative control and your creative vision so that the show will continue to exist as a byproduct of your brain. It was always something that I had a lot of trouble navigating as an actor, especially as I got more and more experience, but then found that I was still being kept into this like shut up and act kind of role on set and in the company. So I imagine, like, probably now post-production and the movie is about to come mm -hmm. out with, like, the last year in quarantine, you've had this minute to digest mm -hmm. your stardom. <laughs> I was reading an interview you gave, I think, for L.A. Magazine about a volleyball party. Will you tell us about that? Absolutely. I was at Santa Monica with three or four of my friends. All I wanted to do was get a good game of beach volleyball. Volleyball is a hard game to get going because not, not a lot of people play it. Or if, if people try to play it, a lot of people play it poorly. And I, you know, played in high school. I was, you know, briefly JV in college. So I just wanted to get a good game and nobody was there. So I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be that like accessible guy and I'm going to put a blast on Instagram. I'm going to be like, hey, hey, everyone. I'm at Santa Monica Pier. I just, you know, I'm trying to get some volleyball games going. Come out and, and let's have some fun. And <laughs> you can imagine in my like naive brain, like how I pictured it going. Like people would show up and they'd be like, oh my God, you know, there would be everyone would be smiling, there'd be laughter. Um, and we'd all play volleyball and that would be that. But um, <laughs> tell us how your dreams were dashed. Yeah. So a, bu a <laughs> no, bunch of it's wonderful. people did show up. None of those people were volleyball players. 
about six or seven of them brought just like duffel bags full of action figures, like full-sized movie posters wedged between styrofoam. Everyone's just sweating on the beach. Like, is there any chance you would sign? To their credit, because I've been, you know, I've been like made before. And it's just like people show up and they're like, sign this, take a picture, do that. They actually joined in. So after playing with them for like 45 minutes and, and you know, bless their hearts, because again, I can't stress enough, none of them played volleyball. But uh, just the fact that they were willing to go through it with me for for that long, I was like, you know what? Have some action figures. That's that's okay. That's rad. Yeah, that's been kind of playing a bigger role in my life. I actually just flew in from New York yesterday. And like a moron, I was like in the convenience store, like right at the gate. And there was a newsstand. And my Entertainment Weekly cover was like on the newsstand. Yeah. And of course, like I haven't been famous for very long so i was like this is kind of a big deal and i kind of like swiped a picture of it and i put it right on my story and because of that i had a party of maybe five or six people waiting for me at lax when i landed i like know their playbook by now they get one kid all right one super cute adorable kid with like one single toy and a pen and they'll come up to you and they'll say hi excuse me would you mind signing this and nobody in the right freaking mind would ever say no to this kid. But then the moment right. that you take that pen and you look down and you start your signature, all of a sudden four more people have appeared and they're all shoving stuff in your face. And it's just such a, a well-oiled machine. And I feel like I'm constantly like losing. Has anyone in your life accused you of changing or like anything that sort of infers the idea of fame warping you? Yes. Yes. People constantly say it. I feel like it's almost a joke at this point, right? It's like people say, oh, don't don't forget the little guys or yeah, don't don't let your head get too big. And of course, what they don't realize is that like fundamentally you you will be changed because of the experiences that you go through. And, and yeah, I feel like you would have such a much better constructed answer than I would. Not necessarily. When I first experienced fame was right after Scary Movie mm -hmm. and it was really heady. But I would go back to my small hometown of Edmonds, Washington, and sometimes people would say things like, oh, you know, Hollywood's here or whatever. But I had a moment where I got kicked out of a bowling alley over Thanksgiving. I was with all my cousins, and I got kicked out because, I don't know, I did something to piss off somebody. And I said, do you know who I am? And I woke up the next morning with so much, like, shame I cannot believe that came out of my, like, mm -hmm. I have experienced the Kool-Aid. That was a moment where I was like, fuck, am I poisoned? Like, what is up with mm -hmm. this? This is an ugly, ugly trait that if nurtured could really become stupid. Mm -hmm. But you are about to experience this whole other thing. So I think that people maybe are anticipating something happening for you and to you that they won't be able to go through that solitary journey. Totally. They can't. And I so admire your honesty, by the way. I thank you so much for it. I, I have thought about saying it, and I guarantee that every single person in our position has thought about it at one point in that moment of like frustration. But that's kind of part of getting older too. And, and I think I'm very happy that I'm 32 years old and going through this rather than 22, because, you know, at 22, I probably would have said it a few friggin' times. And part of the process of growing up is learning to 
reason with yourself when those thoughts enter your brain. So, you know, I, I think, yes, I will be fundamentally changed by whatever happens. But I, I think also I've just built, I've just built so much of myself, my friends, the people that give me life and recharge me, my relationship with my parents, those are all things that I that will ground me and I, I will always be able to come back to and rely on. I love that. Okay, so yes. what was your first boss like? I graduated with a degree in finance and accounting, and I got a job at Deloitte, which is like one of the big accounting firms of the world. So then you chose to pursue something more practical, of course. Of course, of course. Yeah, when you grow up in my household, dropping everything and becoming an actor is not one of the available options. It took, it took a lot to get there. It was definitely a long process. My first boss was a very, very good accountant. She could never understand why I was so bad at my job. And I think she was constantly having to deal with it. So I applaud her, her patience. How were you bad? I, I think if I had gone into like management consulting or, you know, marketing, some place where I was able to use the artistic part of my brain to make creative decisions, I think I would have probably stayed and I probably would have done better at the job and I never would have became an actor. But because I had specifically chosen accounting, it requires such an attention to detail, almost like a machine-like... And it's mundane, correct? It is mundane. I mean, I worked in the audit department and so our job was to go to our client company's offices and, and audit their financial statements, whatever that means. So... I hate that I'm talking about this already. I just like it that you were bad at it and you followed your passion. I was so bad. Oh, God, I've never told this story, but I had heard that like some of our partners sometimes worked from home and I was 22 and like a fucking idiot. Every day was so torturous for me. I woke up one day and I was just like, what if I just worked from home? And I tried. I logged on and they were like, where are you? And I was like, oh, it's, I'm trying to work from home today. And they're like, no, no, no. Like you're, you're a first year associate. Get your ass in the office right now. It was like so dumb in retrospect, like why I thought that I could just do that. But it, I think it was because it just made me so miserable to be at the office that I was just trying to get out in any way that I could. And then um, on April of, of 2012, which was like eight months after I had started, I was called into my managing partner's office and, and laid off. So obviously at the time, really devastated came home thinking about how I was going to break the news to my parents, how I was going to pick my life back up, but, you know, ended up kind of paving way for this incredible journey that happened. So I read that you are also a stuntman. Yeah. Will you tell us your most dangerous stunt and how many times maybe you had to do it? The most dangerous stunt I ever did was my very first day working stunts. The Toronto like film industry is just not that big. And if you want to make a living as a performer, you learn to have your hand in a lot of different buckets. So for me, that was acting, but I would do like extra work from time to time. So yeah, I, I you know, somehow gotten into my mind that I, I wanted to be a stuntman as well. I think part of it, if I'm honest, is Looking at the what the landscape was like for Asian men in the industry at that time, you know, we're talking like 2013, 2014, it was like the majority of us just got beaten up by white dudes, you know, in, in action movies, like whether we were a gangster or you were like, you know, whatever, you, you just, you were a stunt performer, you knew martial arts, like they just went so hand in hand that I thought, well, if I, if I was going to have any longevity in this industry, I was going to have to learn how to take a punch, you know. 
And uh, thankfully, there was a stunt coordinator in Toronto by the name of Tommy Chang, who was willing to take a chance on me and just kind of inserted me at the bottom of the ladders, like the easy stuff. And we show up on set for a, a show that I think got canceled after one season called Heroes Reborn. And um, we run through kind of the, the choreography for the director. And it's just like, you know, the ending is just not working for me. I feel like it needs a bit more of a pop because he's just dropping right now. They're like, what else can you get him to do? And Tommy, of course, is like, well, you know, what if she, oh, no. what if she like clocks him in the neck with her sword and he like backflips onto his head? <laughs> the stunt that he was describing is known as a gainer three quarters because you're not flipping a full way. You're flipping three quarters onto your face and your body. Imagine like you're running forward and you just get clothesline and you just kind of flip back and you. So I had never done that before. I had a gymnastics background. I had backflipped before, but I'd never done the specific fall. And we were doing it in the lobby of this office building. So it was like hard ceramic. It's like as solid as you can get for a surface. And I'm sure Tommy was like, come on, man, you got this. Yeah, yeah. Those people have a culture in and of themselves. It is a very specific energy. And I think it's um, at times hyper-masculine. And I think there was this real sense of like, he's the new kid. Let's just throw him in and see what happens. And I mean, I was shitting bricks leading up to leading up to the first take. I was just like, you know, what if I don't nail it and they hate me and I never get hired again? But also just like, what if I die? Right. That was also just something that was running through my mind. And everything in your body is saying, don't throw yourself against yeah. this hard cement ground. Exactly. So did you nail it? I got it. I, you know, thankfully, there was a couple other performers on set that were able to like lend me some extra pads. I also didn't know that stunt people brought their own pads because, oh you know, as an actor, you just show up and you're like, all right, well, you know, put stuff on me. But, you know, apparently you're supposed to have your own kit. And I, I didn't. So people were nice enough to, like, lend me their stuff. I was padded up and nailed the first take. And then it was like, OK, no, let's let's do it like five more times for the wide. And I was like, oh, yeah, shit. Right. So then by like the sixth or seventh time, like that adrenaline was really starting to wear off. And like, I just started noticing that my head was getting closer and closer to the ground as I was flipping. And I was like, if they make me do 20, the back of my head is just going to go straight into that ground because I'm just not going to have any lift left. Thankfully, I think we only did it about 15 times. God, we, thankfully. <laughs> I know. And you made the mistake of nailing it the first time. Fair enough. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, 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 totally. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? I would love to live somewhere surrounded by water. Cold water, warm water. Ooh, warm water. I'm going to go with Greece. I've never been. I'm dying to go. No way. I've had this love affair with Italy for a while, mm-hmm. but I haven't made it over to Greece. I really, I really would love to. What personality traits do you think you inherited from your parents? I think my parents were incredibly hard workers. They embodied this idea of the immigrant grit the ability to persevere through struggle. Okay, so there's this concept in Chinese called eating bitterness. It's literally, it's chiku and ku is literally bitterness. It's the flavor of bitterness, but it, it, it refers to someone's ability to just grind through just like the worst times in pursuit of something greater, in pursuit of a goal. Is it used as like a positive attribute that somebody would have? Yes. Now, mind you, we could have a conversation about whether I thought the degree to which my parents did it was healthy and, you know, whether or not the degree that I subsequently do it is healthy. But I look at their story all the time. I I think back to what they must have gone through to come here, you know, in the 90s, um, not speaking the language very well. And having to just build a life without any support system of any sort, just kind of from absolutely nothing. It feels like it is very well suited for being an actor and an entrepreneur. Yes. And I'm so glad that you put the two and two together because I think there's a real misconception. By the way, myself included, you know, coming into this world, you know, being cast in a movie. And and I think there's such like a perception that you've made it, (gasps) that you can oh, you can just chill out and you don't have to work that hard anymore. You can basically just retire because once you're in the movies, you just become insanely rich and you can do whatever you want, right? And the unfortunate reality is it is in a lot of ways making it to the top of the mountain, for sure, no doubt. But I think once you get there, you realize it's that peak through which you can see all of the rest of the world and you're like, oh. Yeah, you just can't think about it too much. Yeah. It's just too overwhelming to know that there actually isn't a finish line. Exactly. And the actors that have experienced incredible longevity with their careers do so because they're entrepreneurs, because they're not people who kind of just sit there and are like, well, who's going to offer me a role? What am I going to do next? Like they are insanely motivated, intelligent, thoughtful, proactive people who create. That's been a big lesson for me that I think I learn over and over again. Yeah, I think that the amount of grit and hustle, that's what I really love. Will you say it again, eating bitterness? Sure, cool. Sure, cool. Yeah, really good at this, by the way, honestly. Really? That is a very good pronunciation for somebody who does not speak Mandarin. Thank you. I feel like I'm an all right parrot. Mm -hmm. Will you tell us what your first love was like? Oh, God. I had to stop myself from saying her name. And I hope if she's listening, just she needs to realize that I'm doing it out of love more than anything. And I'm recalling her name in a really wistful way. But it's um, my first love is Ashley Nola. And we started dating in my senior year of high school. So you're 17? 17. Yeah, she was a year younger than me. That is like when love is electrified. That is prime teenage romance. That is like call someone's cell phone 42 times until they pick up. Like that kind of love. Yeah, yeah. 
you don't even know how to handle your emotions kind of love. Were you guys in a relationship for a while? We made it, I think, to about the first week of college, after which I think there was a realization on my part. I was like, I kind of have to focus on this college thing and whatever that experience brings me. But there was there was also like on and off for a little bit afterwards. Did your parents like her? Not at all. Oh, really? Anything that distracted me from studying was like an automatic negative in their eyes. So kind of anything dating related. But then the other thing, too, is I, I attended a, like a private prep school. And she didn't go to the school. So in their eyes, they were like, oh, we're paying. I'm not saying I agree with this kind of train of thought at all. But they were like, you know, we're paying money for you to like be around a certain type of people. And, you know, here you go, just like falling for anyone. But it's so funny, you know, a Ashley and I like really connected over because she had a really rough time with her parents, too. And it was our shared trauma of like our families that actually brought us closer together. So it's like the more that her family would be like, you can't see this guy. and like. My parents were like, stop seeing this girl. The more we would be like, fuck you guys. We, you, you can't tell us what to do. We're in love. And it was definitely one of those situations where our parents just drove us right into each other. And um, yeah, it's, it's just a sweet time. I love that, though. I really do. Now, can we talk about heartbreak? Have you experienced heartbreak? And what was that like? Yeah, I experienced it in second year of college. There was a girl that I had always had a, had a crush on. And um, finally had gotten to an opportunity where something had happened between us. And I was like Joseph Gordon-Levitt in 500 Days of Summer. I love that movie and I hate it at the same time because it's just, it's so true to me. It's tough to watch. Things can be too relatable. Um, but it's him, it's him like the morning after, and, you know, he comes out dancing and he's got the, he's got like the animated birds that come around. Like it was like the best day of my life. And I was like, I'm, that's it. I'm going to marry this girl. She's, she's the best. Uh, she's great. And of course she was like, you know, A, out of my league and B was like, you know, I'm going to be single for a while, but I'll keep you around because you're kind of fun. You were her boy toy. I was a boy toy. I was the guy that was strung along. So this, this kind of highly traumatic experience uh, happened where we were hanging out in her dorm room and she got a text from a couple of her male friends that they were just coming over to drop some stuff off. And she's like, I cannot be seen with you. And so she like runs back and forth and she's like, you have to go into the bathroom. Oh, if I had any sort of a backbone at that age, I would have told that woman to go F herself and just stormed out of it. But I was like, you know what? Like maybe if I do this for her, she will understand just how serious I am about this. And I literally, I was in the bathroom for like 15 minutes and I, you know, heard them come in and whatever come out. And the whole time I, you know, just feeling my like total lack of self-respect and all of my self-hatred was just, oh, it was so gross. Did you ever see her again? Yeah. I want to say that it was that moment that I just totally stopped trying and like developed self-respect and, and pride. But I, I kept going. I kept going. I, I continued to try to woo her, to think that maybe she would change her mind. And I think you're, you're so right in that you say that it's more about this idea than it is about the person. Because, you know, especially when you're young and you, you've never felt love before, I think you're obsessed with the idea of it. You're obsessed with the way that it's packaged and sold to you in rom-coms, in, you know, whatever. You're like, whatever that is, I want that. Um, two years after, different girl, by the way. And we had dated for a number of months, but then she had broken up with me. 
so clearly I hadn't learned my lesson yet. I was like, I thought it would be a good idea to knock on her door. Keep in mind, she was living at home. So it was knock on her family's door with like a, a Christmas present and just to say, hi, Merry Christmas. You know, it's, it's, I just, just wanted to let you know that I was thinking of you and drove kind of half an hour from my house to hers, knocked on the door. She wasn't there, was kind of sitting in my car on the curb for just a moment to like collect my thoughts when she pulls in with her mom. And instantly I recognize that to her, I have been waiting for her to come home. And the look that she gives me as she comes out of the car is like the most horrifying. It's like she's just seen her stalker. You know, nothing has made me feel lower and worse than, than that moment. It was truly, truly awful. Were you able to be like, hey, I just wanted to say hi. I mean, I tried, but imagine if someone had, you know, was waiting for you. Like, would you, would you believe them? And I wouldn't have expected her to. What advice do you think you would give your younger self? I feel like so many people would say this. So it's not exactly the most original thing, but I would say let go of your need to be validated by other people. If it were only that easy, though, right? Right. You know, for me growing up as an only child, it's lonely enough kind of being an only child in a family, period. But I was the only child in an immigrant family, which I think meant double the isolation because I was already isolated by virtue of like my parents spoke a different language at home, came from a completely different set of cultural values and norms. And then to top that off, I had I had nobody with which I could experience this thing with navigating a new culture, learning the language, making new friends. And we, you know, we were one of those families that moved around a lot initially. So it was just, it was so hard to figure out where my place was in, in everything. And, and a lot of it, honestly, in the beginning was just trying to do what everyone else was doing, mimicking, parroting. Did you try on almost different personalities? Definitely, definitely. I feel like for the, for the better part of, of my early years, I was shy and I just didn't speak English. So I just didn't really talk. And then, you know, as I got older and I realized I was, you know, not cool. I was not one of the cool kids. And, you know, because I was an Asian guy, none of the, none of the girls in class wanted to date me. I all of a sudden, you know, I, I kind of morphed into this overly extroverted, very presentational kind of person, um, just constantly seeking approval and attention. Well, clearly that hasn't changed, but <laughs> I like to think that it's at least toned down a little bit. I was really short and I had no boobs. That felt like my identity. But I, I grew up doing like local theater, which made me this weird nerd. <laughs> like kids knew that I sort of did some stuff, but I was just really quiet. My whole goal was to just simply like fly as low as possible mm -hmm. until my world got bigger. But I had these beautiful girlfriends and I felt like I spent my high school years like with these cute guys asking me to help them out with like Kate or Kilby. Oh yeah. It was like a particular kind of heartbreak, I guess, being like the friend. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Okay, so what qualities do you look for in a romantic partner? I think it is so critical to have the same stupid, goofy sense of humor. Because I think you could be with the most beautiful person in the world, but if you cannot laugh with that person 
and you can't connect to that person with one look and understand exactly what's going through their mind and, and know that they understand exactly what's going through your mind, none of it is worth it. That has been big for me. All right. I love that. What is a trait you dislike in others? Lack of self-awareness. You can be a lot of things if you're just self-aware about it. You can be imperfect. You can be flawed. You can be forgiven for so many things if you just recognize, you know, whatever it is in yourself and you're taking a step towards bettering yourself or just an understanding of who you are. But for people who lack that, for people who are in some way deluded about themselves, about, you know, what they offer, about who they are. I think that's, that's, it's always been a, a real tough one for me to deal with. What is a trait you dislike in yourself? I feel like I still do buy into societal constructs of success and wealth. That sometimes I do feel like the pursuit of wealth will justify sacrificing things in, in my personal life. I'm not sure if I'm doing the, the work-life balance thing, especially at a time like this. You know, and, and yeah, there's a recognition. I mean, everyone I talk to is like, well, yeah, you're literally building a career in Hollywood right now and you're about to have your first movie premiere and you should be working hard. I'm like, yeah, okay. But I wonder when it all dies down, am I going to be able to die down or am I going to be the type of person that wants to keep going and always wants more? How is doing press though? Are you like about to ramp up into a serious international press tour? I am. You know, it, it's both good and bad. I mean, you know, obviously because of COVID, there haven't been many movies that have been able to do that. But I think we'll be one of the first to really travel. I think we get to go to the United Kingdom at some point later on in the month and we get to kind of swing back to my hometown of Toronto. I'm so excited for you. Yeah, it'll be fun. And then going, you know, going through, obviously we have our Los Angeles premiere, but I get to, I think throughout the first pitch at a baseball game, I get to go on talk shows. So it's really, really exciting experiences coupled with like eight hour days that are just pure press. I think I have a good relationship to it. I realized very early on in my career that I was going to have to talk about being Asian a lot. And it, it definitely happened when we were on Kim's Convenience because we were the first Canadian TV sitcom with an all Asian cast. And so for the first like two seasons, all anybody ever asked us was, why is diversity important? How does it feel to be an Asian cast? And, you know, I knew I had a choice. Either I could be upset about it or I could understand that this was indicative of a greater shift that was happening in the industry and in society. And that if I wanted to contribute to that shift, I was going to have to answer that question over and over and over again. But that that was a part of that fight. And I made the decision to lean in. You know, since then, I think I put a lot of thought into what it means to be Asian and what it means to be Asian American specifically or Canadian and what it means to be an Asian American or Canadian actor who is representing on screen in a, in a new way. I think that's really generous of you. Thank you. Thank you. Because I could see a world where that pill would be hard to swallow. And we're in this industry where we are our own small business. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's really generous that you decided to lean into it. And I bet it is probably annoying at times, to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. Can you think of either best advice or worst advice that you've been given? Mm, I think the worst advice that I've been given is be grateful. Really? Will you tell us about that? 
it was given to me by somebody who I was working for, you know, and I, I don't think that that means that I don't think people should be grateful. I think people should be intensely grateful. I am filled with gratitude every day at all the amazing opportunities that I have gotten, especially in these last couple of years. But I think the spirit of what was being said to me was know your place. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's know your place. Um, because if you know your place, then you know not to step outside of it. Whereas somebody who is consistently testing their boundaries and seeing if they can do more or seeing if they can become more is somebody that's seen as stepping out of their lane. So this idea of like having to stay in your lane, I think, is is the thing that I, I bump against. People have told me that my whole life. And I've always just been like, why? I want to be different things. I don't want a lane. I want to do everything. And especially in the context of work and, you know, in this industry, it's like you can't be complacent and you can't be afraid. Do you have general advice about making a relationship work? I think people are very good, especially in a dating context, at sensing agenda. And I think agenda is something that causes a lot of people to withdraw in the context of dating. Like if I'm seeing a girl that really wants to, you know, more than I do, and every interaction that we have is her trying to prove to me how good of a girlfriend she would be, that's very, very apparent. Oh, man. Instead, even though it might be harder, you need to just be able to have a good time with the person, free of that agenda free of trying to put something into that interaction, free of trying to prove a point. And it's so hard because as human beings, we're constantly trying to prove a point. We're constantly trying to convince people that, you know, they should be with us or that they should think this way or that they should do this. But um, that is, I, I would say, guaranteed one of the fastest ways to push someone away from you. That's a great answer. Thank you. It is. Okay. What talent or ability would you most like to have? Photographic memory. That's a good one. I don't know why nobody has ever said that before. Really? Yes. I am constantly forgetting shit. Well, think about how handy it would be as actors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would have written like 10 stand-up specials by now. I always tell myself I have great material for stand-up and I just like come up with these great jokes and I, if I do not write them down in the exact moment, they're gone and I can never get them back. It's really just like, like a flash in the pan kind of thing. And even when I do write it down, sometimes I read it back and I'm like, I have no idea what I was thinking or the punchline just isn't as fresh to me. When or where are you happiest or most content? It would have to be somewhere, I think, not in L.A. <laughs> as, as much as I love this city. I think it would be like somewhere close to my parents. Um, I, uh, I lost my grandparents pretty recently and I was doing reshoots on the movie and my parents did, um, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, The Farewell, but it's all about like this Chinese family taking on this massive lie in order to spare the feelings of this one person. And I was going through reshoots at the time and my, my parents didn't tell me until I came home almost two months later. And so I never learned that they were, you know, in the hospital. I didn't know that they had passed. And, and then all of a sudden, it just like it, it all just kind of came down on me. Do you view that as a gift now or not? I am sad that I didn't get to properly say goodbye, but I, I don't hold any feelings of resentment or anger towards my parents. I, I understand 
what they were trying to do. And, and I think as much for me, it was also, I think for them, you know, I, I understand that, that, that it came from a place of love. So I've kind of come to terms with it. But um, one of the first things that I said after I walked through the door was, can we go see Ye Ye Night Night? And so I think that means that one of my happiest places was, was where they were. You know, every time I've ever seen them, I think everything else has just kind of melted away. That's pretty wonderful. I'm glad that you had like a loving experience with your grandparents. Mm -hmm. Oh, I wanted to ask you, I heard you talking briefly about a partnership. I am the Canadian ambassador for UNICEF Canada. That's rad. Yeah. And one of the one of the big initiatives that we're working on right now is the Give a Vax campaign, which um, it's a, a, what a lot of campaigns are centered around right now. But it's it's increasing vaccine awareness in North America, in Canada, but also you know, increasing awareness of the fact that not all countries are fortunate enough to have ready access to vaccines like us. And so the Give a Vax initiative is, is all about donating to, to help those underprivileged countries procure vaccines as well. Our donations are being matched by the Canadian government. So uh, it's something that, that is really incredible that we have government endorsement on and uh, very, very happy to, to be a part of it. And you're about to go on a press tour, so that can always be like your back pocket talking point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't thank you enough. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, Anna. I know you're going to, like, just kill it on that press tour. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey everyone, April Beyer is back now officially as my much-needed co-host. As you know from previous episodes, April brings great advice, insight, and years of experience. I am so thrilled to have her. Aiden! Hi, Anna. Will you tell us what's happening? Yeah, so um, I kind of wanted to write to you guys because I've been having a problem kind of with guys in general over the like past few years. Starting about probably like four years ago, I was in my first relationship. It was like a year long. It was kind of emotionally abusive. And then I led on to my second relationship. It was short. The third relationship, um, he ended up cheating on me. So I haven't had like the best like relationship. Um, so after that, I kind of went around and slept around a little bit with a lot of guys. Um, I took some time to myself to reflect and was like, okay, I really need to focus on myself. So I actually moved to Oregon. I'm 19. So I'm in college now. 
And over like the last year, I've tried to, you know, get something that becomes like a date or possibly a relationship. And they turn out to be sort of like intimate really quickly, or they just want sex. And I guess all of this has turned out to be kind of a little damaging for me because no matter what, it's like the guys my age are immature. I've dated older guys. They're still immature. And I kind of just want something to like kind of be structured and something I could build up on. Right now, I'm, you know, going to school full time, even during the summer. And um, I have a full time job now working on the weekends. So I know it's not like a perfect circumstance, but I would really love to find somebody who's willing to possibly try that. Um, I know the last few relationships, I guess, that I've had, they were intimate really quickly. And it was kind of like I set up boundaries that were like, hey, I need to be able to start something with you. And it went straight to intimacy. Then they pretty much ghosted me or kept me going on for a while. And I kind of finally stood up for myself and was like, hey, I need this or, you know, I'm going to let you go. And both of them were kind of like, all right, I guess I'll go now. So I guess it kind of hurt me in a sense of like just trying to get back on the bandwagon because it's so much energy trying to keep dating. Aiden, do you mind if I also read a tiny bit of your email? Oh, yeah, of course. You write, a bit of background, I come from a strict but relaxed home. My parents are divorced since I was young, no relationship with my father. I was raised by my strong military mother who continued to have bad relationships when I was growing up until her current fiancé, who, by the way, is amazing. That's nice. I've also been through a lot of weathering. You name it, I've seen it. Tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, medical and mental illnesses, death. So I can see why your life experience has felt pretty concentrated at 19. Yeah. And that's like one of the things that, you know, being such a young age, it's like, it's hard to find somebody who's gone through that. Um, It's been a lot. I don't see it as a lot, but I guess a lot of people, you know, notice that. And that's why I noticed off the last podcast was that type of weathering. It's I've realized that um, I've been through a lot and that maturity has fast tracked, especially with my mom being military, she was always gone. So I tried to, you know, establish some type of, I guess, independence in myself. And I want to keep that going. Um, And I I don't find that a lot, I guess, in guys my age or even older. Do you feel like you fit in with the college and the town where you are? How is that situation? Yeah, I feel like I fit in here. It's a great town. I love it. Um, It actually reminds me of my hometown uh, growing up in West Virginia. But it's, I don't know, there's not a very big community here. And I don't know if it's just the gay community or not, but it's very small. Uh, A lot of people kind of know each other. I don't want to say there's a lot of trauma in that field of community, but there seems to be some sort of like dynamic where it's dangerous to keep going out there because a lot of people like to talk about one another. So I feel comfortable who I am and where I am. But yeah, being here, like I don't really have any friends right now since of COVID being here. Everything's been on Zoom. Um, but I'm trying to get out there now and, you know, make friends and try to keep making connections. Yeah. What are you studying in school right now? I'm studying to be an environmental engineer. Nice. Good for you. Thank you. So on a scale of one to 10, what is your desire of being in a relationship? Well, I think now I want to see myself working on myself a little bit more. I guess that's kind of what I wanted was outside perspective and kind of advice because I've been thinking lately, do I want to take kind of like a year to think of myself or be in a relationship? I know that I could be on my own, but relationship wise, I think recently, like a six or a seven, like I still want that intimacy, but I kind of want to learn more to be on my own. But I, I guess I'm kind of like in this whole big gray zone. 
from what I'm gathering, maybe sleeping with a bunch of people doesn't emotionally satisfy you. Mm-hmm. I am curious about what you learned about yourself during those experiences during that time. I think I learned more about my sexuality in terms of it being on my own time and more about, I think, loving myself because after my first relationship, it really kind of scarred me. And I think that kind of may have went down the road of how my other two relationships were really, really bad. So I don't know if it was more of just exploratory afterwards or just to have fun, but I think it kind of made me learn more about the world, more about myself, more about other people. Um, I would say probably loving myself more because I think during that time I didn't love myself enough. I think that April sort of taught me to really think about the environment that we were raised in and how our parents communicated and what patterns we we witnessed and then absorbed and then, you know, duplicated. Aiden, can I ask you a question? What do you mean by you want a structured relationship? What does that mean? I guess it means for me someone who is willing to build something with me in terms of a relationship. I think it's more for me as somebody who's going to be there when I can be there. So, and you know, because like I said, I'm so busy with college and work, I can't be there 24-7. And I want to be able to find somebody who's willing to kind of put in that time to work on themselves with me and, you know, make sure that that time is kind of at the same point, you know. Perfect. And when you set up those boundaries with the people you dated prior, where you said, look, this is what I'm looking for. And you said that oftentimes the intimacy moves too quickly, even though you stated your boundaries. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I think for a while I didn't state my boundaries at all, only because I was scared of abandonment and rejection. I know that's like my biggest thing I have that I'm still dealing with. But I would say more recently, in the last few months, I've been very clear of what I've wanted and stating that, you know, friends with benefits, sex isn't just for me. Um, And for some reason, I don't know if it's just because I kind of fall into like my friends and I quote it like the dick sand. It's kind of like quicksand for guys. Yeah, it's from How to Be Single, that movie. But basically, it's like for some reason, if somebody gives me, you know, any attention, I kind of tend to be a little bit more attentive to them and kind of, you know, not fall in love, but tend to like them a little bit more. So I think maybe that has something to do with it. And I try not to, and I tried not to with the last two, but it seemed to be that it wasn't just uh, intimacy that they were you know, giving. It wasn't just sex. It was all sorts of intimacy, you know, affection on all levels. And I just felt, I guess, portrayed in the sense that it was like a lie almost, you know, I wasn't continually getting it. Right. That. A lot of people think if they say their boundaries that everybody goes, okay, but unfortunately that's not the way life works. It's what is your boundary? What is the desire? How do you want to build relationship? How do you articulate it? And then what do you do behaviorally to make sure you back that up? Because when somebody crosses your boundary, it's not necessarily their fault because you can't cross a boundary unless somebody allowed you to. And that's a slippery, slippery slope because you're then giving away your power to the person who's giving you attention Because if you're in the scarcity mode of this guy's going to leave, if I don't do this, that's why you keep moving your own boundary back, 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 back. And then you're upset because the boundary got crossed. Intimacy happened too soon. You didn't get the relationship building aspect you were looking for, right? Yeah. And how do you feel when your boundaries are crossed in that way? What is the one word you feel? Usually I'm okay because I'm like going along with the affection. But if they cross that line and I know it's not going anywhere. It's complete like sorrow. I'm like, 
making sure I'm like by the phone all the time, waiting for their text messages. It's ridiculous. It's, right. it's so bad. Right. It's because you lost your power because you gave up your power. I get it. You're attached to your phone because you're thinking, oh gosh, now I, I'm seeking their validation again. They crossed the boundary. I'm hurt. I'm abandoned. I'm, I would guess, Aiden, that you feel disrespected, right? And that you don't feel like you were hurt or seen. And so then instead of you making your decision from that feeling, you decide to wait by the phone because you have conflated the feeling of abandonment with, it must be, I like this guy. And so you then go into hyperdrive of trying to save that relationship instead of going, wait a minute, the person who didn't listen to my boundaries, who crossed them anyway, disrespected me, didn't hear me, didn't want what I want. So I need to be able to make a decision on whether to date this person continuously based on that behavior. You're not being betrayed. You're betraying yourself. This so feels like my college experience, Aiden. <laughs> the being so obsessed with being liked and adored clouded any examination of my crush. I don't know if that's exactly the same for you, Aiden, but man, I would take the phone off the hook. Because I just, I would torture myself waiting for someone to call. I would say that's the same thing for me. I grew up kind of, I didn't have a lot of friends. I grew oh, up kind of with like a lot of bullying. <sighs> In high school, I did like, I just didn't care. Like nobody could get to me. But um, it's been hard, I think, going with that, making friends and moving forward with possibly a relationship. Um, but yeah, that's definitely something that I kind of attend to. Yeah. Bless your heart. First of all, you are absolutely beautiful. And you're going to be this hotshot environmental engineer. And as you get older, you're going to be able to like look at everybody who deceived and left and didn't participate and build with you. And you're going to go, hmm, <laughs> should have got me. Yeah, you're adorable <laughs> and smart. And I think, you know, when we talked about the weathering earlier on and you being through all these things and you feel like it gave you like a layer of maturity. It's also the not having a relationship with your dad and your mom being gone a lot. So there's just a lot of aloneness. My guess is that you actually don't need a relationship right now because you're essentially saying to somebody, I want you to want what I want. And I'm going to guess that because I'm getting the attention that that's what you want. And I want you to be able to fit into my schedule in my life because I'm going to school full-time and I've got a full-time job and I work on weekends. So I want the full-on commitment and the total partnership and co-creation, but I want you to be there when I want you to be there. And that's hard. So in effect, you're almost attracting the sprinters, not the long-distance runners. Because maybe, just maybe, Aiden, you might be kind of too busy for somebody right now unless... He is also super motivated in his education, working a lot, still grounded, still a relationship kind of guy that says, hey, two nights a week with you is better than five nights with five people. Like, it's that person who's already had a rhythm of relationship. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, totally. So that's what I would be looking at if I were you. It's not just stating your boundaries. It's also, who is this right person? And ask yourself. Who am I right for and who is right for me? It's not just about what you want. It has to go back and forth because there's something about these people that push on your boundaries. It's like saying, I need honesty. I need <clears throat> somebody who's faithful. I need somebody who's looking for a relationship. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, let's go to the bedroom. To me, it's not about sex. It's about why didn't this person listen? What did they see in me 
that made them know that the door was cracked open, that they could put their foot through it and go anyway, right? That's the lesson here. Because I think when that happens, it's because you're starving a little bit for attention and closeness and intimacy in general, not just in love and dating and relationship, but just in general, you don't have that core friend group. You're super busy with school and work. So you feel this void. And a lot of people try to fill that void with dating. And then they kind of suffer a little bit. You're so advanced for your age and where you're going in your career that my guess is that you're not going to date in this prolific way like a lot of people do that are not as dedicated to their career and education. Sometimes the smarter you are, the more particular you are, the less you should date. So try to make sure that you know that you're not going to be able to keep up with the masses, that the kind of guys you're going to date might be fewer and far between, but they're going to be exceptional. And if you can allow yourself to realize that you're at a higher level on a lot of different things, then you just need to be patient and really just not fall in love with who's in love with you. You have to know, like, so I'm getting attention. Okay, that makes sense. I'm good looking. I'm smart. I'm kind. I'm an interesting guy. That's good. But how do I feel about that person? Do I trust that guy? Do I admire that guy? Do we have the same educational values? Does he have his own weathering and seasoning? Does he look like he's somebody that's ready for a relationship? Don't ask him. Know it. Observe it. Because you have such a, a, a sensitive heart that it seems like the sex stuff isn't, it's not filling you up. It's not making you happy. It's like a quick fix rather than something that's really supporting you. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for support. Yeah, I definitely think that I need to work more on how I perceive guys, especially like you said, observance. I think my biggest thing is I kind of idolize them a little bit after I get involved with them for a little bit. So yeah, I definitely think I need to observe more. And um, I think I'm starting to get a hang of it a little bit, but I'm definitely happy so far of what we've discussed. Good. Yeah. I think it's just remembering, like sitting down, Aiden, and remembering like, what are my awesome qualities? Like, what do I know for sure about myself? And when you know that, it's a safer way to date because then you don't idolize. It's so dangerous to idolize people in dating. It's so dangerous because your power is gone, right? It's about like, I like that person. I respect them. I adore them. They're gorgeous or I'm attracted. But idolizing somebody is... Have you guys seen The Bachelor? It's hard for me to watch. Why? Do you have an example? <laughs> oh, it's just that's the whole conceit of the show. You know, people put in this situation of complete adoration and worship when the person seems like they could be interchangeable. Yeah, they yeah. totally can. And like everybody's <laughs> fighting and vying for attention for this person. But it's a great show, April. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I... I think it's not, it's not egotistical to say in your mind, thank you. Like when somebody goes, you're really attractive or you're really smart or I like you. It's okay to be inside quietly going, that makes sense. You don't have to say, of course you do. I'm amazing. It's like, that makes sense. It's knowing ourselves that teaches other people how to treat us. Because the words that we say get lost if we've attracted the wrong people and we don't know ourselves. They're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy is saying one thing. But his behavior is completely different. And it's because you're craving the attention and you're going into overdrive on your infatuation and giving away your power. When you of all people, because you're mature, because you're so smart, because you have so much going on for yourself, you can literally like 
hold your counsel more. Like you can hold that power and that space and come into your own. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I'm really excited for you. And I do think, as you've written, that your life experiences, it sounds like most people wouldn't ever have this amount of sort of tragedy. It made me actually think about kids who see something really inappropriate on the internet a little too soon. Like the visual searing of that experience and then what you have gone through becomes a weight to a degree. And you compare, like, I would imagine that you having been through all these things and having a relatively hard childhood, and it makes you sometimes feel like you don't have a ton in common with a lot of people. Would that be right? Yeah. I didn't actually recognize the emotional abuse in my first relationship until years later. I had people telling me on a daily basis, why are you with him? He's telling you constantly, you know, you're stupid or you don't look good in that. I was like, but I'm in love with him. Like, what does that mean? And it actually took my stepfather to finally say, I don't like the way he's talking to you. And it just like finally clicked to me like, holy, like, holy shit. Like I'm literally being emotionally abused. I can't take this anymore. So yeah, I definitely think the weight of what I've had is more of like, I don't really cherry pick. It's more of just like if something happens, I'm just cool with it because I can deal with it and I move forward. Um, I mean, that's not the best way to deal with things, but I guess that's kind of just always how I've always how I've lived. So, well, you were very proactive in moving to Oregon. That was like a totally strong proactive move that you made in your life that took a lot of courage. Well, sometimes Anna, when people have been through a lot, they get a little um, not desensitized, but it's kind of like when you've been long term shouldering a lot, like the muscle almost like builds up so big of like. I can take it that you forget to kind of mind the store of like, wait a minute, that hurt. Cause you're like, I can handle this. Like what else? Like, I love you. Like there must be something else that I can do. So people that have had to have a lot of responsibility early on and a lot of independence like you did, Aiden, like not having your mom around a lot and you know, the strictness and your dad not being around, you had to kind of handle stuff. And I always say just because you can doesn't mean you should. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, of course. I definitely, I definitely understand. I think now I'm recognizing that trait more, especially, like I said, with the guys where it's like, okay, this boundary is definitely way, way, way past and I need to end things. And it's just surprising to me how easy they're just able to let go. It's just like, no problem. It's not because they didn't like you. It's because you attracted somebody that wasn't interested in a relationship to begin with, which is why they fast-tracked it. So when they say, fine, okay, I'll let go. That's super easy. You go into, well, wait a minute. You know, why was it so easy to say goodbye to me? That, that hurts. But what you have to realize is it's not about you. Remember, take yourself out of the picture. They didn't want a relationship to begin with, which is why they pushed past your boundary, which is why you ended up in the sack so quickly, which is why they did what they did and the hurtful behavior. People will treat us the way we allow them to, period. Mm-hmm. Of course, definitely. And so what you're looking for really is to be supported to be heard, to be respected. So the minute you're not, that means you don't progress the relationship. You don't wait until Rome burns. You immediately go, I said that and that guy didn't listen. And I don't want to be with people who don't listen to me because I don't feel supported. And if I don't feel supported, I can't focus on my job and my education. Are you on a dating app right now? I was for a while. I was on all of them. Uh, That was kind of where I realized I needed to get off because 
that was kind of another obsession of mine. Not only was it the texting, but it was like trying to find Mr. Perfect, swipe left, swipe right. I just had to get rid of it. So I got rid of everything. Good for you. You could still do it. It's just that people don't know how to use their apps. They lean on them too much. Like they make them everything. Like you could still have like one dating app and then just check it twice a week for like 20 minutes and that's it. I think you're busy right now, to be honest with you. And I'm not saying that you can't have a relationship when you're busy, but you got stuff to do. <laughs> you know, you're going to be an environmental engineer. Like we need you. So it's true. I think it's going to be a great year in terms of like you getting to meet people. People will be excited to be out. You'll have a lot of different life experiences and maybe you'll learn to let people in in a healthy way. I always say, Aiden, if you're exhausted and fatigued, you're trying too hard. Yeah, definitely trying too hard. Yeah, you don't need to. You're so young. You're giving yourself too much responsibility. You're doing too much work because you've had to be responsible for so long. Give yourself a break. Don't try to solve every single problem right now because it's too much. Yeah, I definitely would like to learn how to do that. I definitely have a problem with control. So yeah. I, I think it's going to take some time and probably more therapy. But <laughs> I think I'm starting to get to a place that I am liking. I'm really excited for you. Whenever you're, you have an issue with control, it's because you're afraid of being vulnerable. That's all that it really is, right? So you control the environment. And those are the people that are the most exhausted and the people that attract all the wrong partners. Because the desire for partnership outweighs the logic of, wait a minute, I can pace myself and wait for somebody that is truly great for me. And you're not really waiting. You're just getting ready right now. That's it. Aiden, I hope we gave you some good food for thought. I think you're amazing. You are wise and clearly handsome and smart and funny. And I think the future is yours. And I really appreciate you talking with us today, too. Of course. Thank you guys so much. I'm just so happy to be here. And I, I really am going to take everything you guys throw at me. I've been listening now for years, and you've helped me through so much. I've gone through complete shit. And my mom says hi, by the way. I just have to say that. Oh, and I love um, your mom. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I just love you guys so much. You both are so beautiful, and I just cannot wait to keep listening to you guys and just keep learning and growing. Oh. Aiden, you like made my month. Thank you so much. And I love you. We adore you. You are so, so precious. Just know that it's all going to be okay. You're, you're really on a really good track. Thank you so much. I love you guys so much. I love you too. Bye, guys. Bye Aiden. Bye, Aiden. Bye.